Hey, podcast listeners. Welcome back to the second part of episode 17, talking about swifts, wall lizards, dolphins in harbors, and the bigger concept of biophilia. No, uh, so, my name is uh, Mauro Ferry. Mauro is the name, Ferry, the family name. I met first time in early 80, the common Swiss species, the Apus Apus, and its particular mutual relationship with the human here in Italy. That's a very, very particular relationship. Uh, the nest habit behavior is uh, very interesting because at present uh, in uh, Italy, uh, most of the population, quite the 98%, 99%, nest in the roofs of the traditional uh, roofs of downtowns and traditional houses in Italy, where we use coppo tiles or Mediterranean tiles. They yes. are a particular kind of tile, curved. These hollow, the roofs have a lot of uh, hollows uh, in the first line of the tiles around the roofs. And the Swifts use mainly these ones to nest. Wow. A little part of the population use the holes in the monuments as churches, palaces, bell towers, castles, towers, and scaffold holes, where the scaffold holes remain. Is a particular part, a little part of the population, but it's very significant because when it happens, and often hundreds and hundreds of pairs stay all together in one building. This is very, very spectacular. A very little part of the population nest till now in artificial structures builds since medieval times here in Italy for Swifts and called here Swifts Towers. So why would you intentionally build a nesting place for Swifts? Of course, uh, providing artificial nests uh, for Swifts was intentional and was restricted to particular Swift keepers that were uh, not uh, the most part of the population. They were single individuals uh, sharing these particular habits uh, they uh -huh. uh, did to collect meat of birds. The most of the birds, uh, of the swifts, uh, the most of the nesting of swifts on the roofs is uh, accidental, non-intentional. Uh, okay. okay. So people do not know where Swifts do nest. They only know that Swifts are characteristics of downtowns. <laughs> they saw a lot of Swifts grouping or patrolling in the sky during the summer, but most of the people do not know where they nest. But This is dramatic. It is dramatic. Let me ask, though, people, the part that was surprising to me it was that they that people eat them for meat. Oh yes, the eating, uh, collecting uh, bird for meat purpose was uh, common in these two parts of uh, Europe, huh. Central Northern Italy for Swifts, 
at the beginning, and then uh, this habit uh, was shifted to the sparrows here in Italy. And the, in Netherlands uh, and uh, Belgium and northern France, uh, this habit was, was for starling and sparrows. So what is happening today to the buildings where swifts have nested? Okay, it is dramatic. Nowadays, in UK, quite half of the population of Zwifts uh, is uh, wiped out because the roof's restoration and insulation following modern inns for uh, energetic uh, um, managing of the buildings. Yeah. So we have, we have a progressive, slow, but uh, progressive and irreversible reversible mechanism uh, causing the roofs are restored or rebuilt using uh, um, other device, other kind of uh, tiles or sealing the old copper tiles. Uh. And this made a disaster because uh, roofs by roofs, Swifts lose habitats. And this is very, very dramatic. Uh, in the next year, we will see the collapse of the population if people do, uh, have, uh, will have not the chance to offer to the birds new opportunity of nesting, for example, in nest boxes to be hanged in the wall or to be built inside the wall in the new construction. Okay. It is possible. We have a lot of opportunity. We have also private company in uh, Germany and in UK offering devices to be used in new buildings for this purpose. Okay. Uh, in Italy, the situation is not uh, so good. We started two years ago, actually, uh, to say something to people. We invented also an uh, a yearly event uh, we called... Uh, in the festival of uh, dei Rondoni, the festival for the Zwifts, and we call for people observing Zwifts uh, around their homes in, uh, at the end of June, uh, the, which is, the, that is uh, the, the best period to observe Zwifts here in Italy. And uh, in this time, we uh, discuss, we offer from websites and uh, from media information about uh, the needs uh, of uh, the Zwifts for nesting, offering also ins for nest boxes. Okay. It is a very low mechanism. A little part of the colony, I said, uh, nest in uh, scaffold holes. This is uh, the most dramatic uh, argument of uh, this uh, phenomenon because municipality and uh, private owners fight against pigeons. They hear the pigeons' nests in the holes of the walls. And the municipality and private owners practice this particular kind of war against the pigeons in a very severe way. So they seal all the holes. They seal completely. Now me and colleagues invented a method to reduce selectively uh, the entrance of the holes to avoid, to prevent the entrance of the pigeons and let the Swifts 
bats and little passerines and jackals and lizards enter in the walls. <laughs> We call this operation protecting living monuments. And okay. uh, people like very much this one. And then um, my personal uh, little war is uh, to spread information about uh, the last legacies, uh, about uh, Swift Towers, and uh, I suggest things to restore and to manage ancient Swift Towers to host uh, Swifts nowadays. Yeah. Um, I have some good specimens of restoration working. Okay. You know, when, when we often think of habitat as either natural or not natural, but here we have a species that depends on artificial on, on so buildings. So it's a, a natural habit, it's a natural behavior of the Swifts addressed in non unintentionally to be tied, related, tied, strictly tied to the buildings. Yes. So this is natural or artificial. Yes. It's a, a mix of both. Okay. And so when you... But when you... we have no chance for these species in the in natural habitats because we have no forests. So we yeah. have uh, now woodlands and uh, local forests, but uh, trees, uh, tower, all trees towering over the canopy as they, uh, they did, they do uh, in Lapland or in Biawasia forest are very, very rare individuals nowadays. So the, the populations of Swiss can't depend from this. They can't, they, they have to depend only from uh, buildings for the next century, I guess. What if we what if we reimagined buildings uh, as like I said in the beginning you know not just for people but as habitat places for let's say swifts and what if we said to the designers um, from the very beginning we want this building to also house a colony of I don't know several thousand swifts you know? <laughs> yeah. and 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 then you design it in such a way that it provides a chimney like space uh, maybe not literally a chimney but a chimney like space just to their liking. Yep. And what if that would be possible to make them make this kind of cohabitation? Uh, I know that green roofs, uh, if they're designed correctly, you can have ecosystems up there where you have birds of prey and you have beehives and you have all kinds and of things And you have flowering plants that draw on pond, yeah. draw on butterflies and, 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 and beetles and, and, and whatnot. Right, yeah. you have insect life. So you could turn that into the vertical. Yes, it's an energy-efficient building. Yes, it's it's all those things, but it's also a building that sustains life. Yeah, you know. Another animal that we think of—it's funny. This is something that we'll, we'll cover later on um, in an episode about wall lizards, as in. An... Yeah, I listened to part of that <laughs> wall lizard. That was pretty cool. That Maastricht is actually very close to Aachen, where I was, where I'm originally from. So it's that's very, very close to where I grew up. Well, my name is uh, Frank Spikmans, and I'm a uh, master uh, at uh, biology from the Netherlands. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, a wall lizard um, uh, is, of course, a uh, reptile, a, a lizard, a small lizard. 
And um, uh, here in Holland, uh, we've got only four lizards uh, living. And um, this is the lizard that uh, adores the, the sun and the warmth uh, the most uh, of all the lizards living in, in the Netherlands. That's why it's uh, living uh, only in the southern part of the Netherlands. So that is our most um, uh, sunny and uh, climatic, uh, warmest uh, place of our country. And uh, for the rest of Europe, it lives uh, more to the south, uh, more in Italy, in France, some in Belgium. And really, the, um, the population we have in the Netherlands is the northernmost of its range, its um, uh, original range. So it's kind of like the, um, the Eskimos of all lizards uh, living <laughs> in uh, Europe. Um, and uh, in, in the Netherlands, can you talk a little bit about what kind of habitat you find it in? Yep. The wallaces, because they are so uh, um, uh, fond of uh, warmth and they really need uh, warmth uh, for their eggs to develop, um, uh, it's um, uh, like we, we call it a culture follower. So it follows uh, humans in, these, in this part of its uh, range. That's why it's living in uh, Maastricht uh, on um, uh, walls, or, uh, old city walls, and, and they have been there for hundreds of years already. And, and these are ex uh, especially the, the southern uh, exposed uh, walls. They are really warm. They get really warm. And um, um, they are bound to this type of uh, habitat. And they live uh, originally uh, nowhere else uh, in the Netherlands. What was their natural habitat like uh, in the Netherlands before humans built walls that they now call their natural habitat? Well, I suppose um, uh, they are really at their northernmost uh, range uh, uh, in, in the Netherlands. And um, uh, naturally, they live more in the, uh, in the valleys of rivers and streams. They have these um, uh, sunny, exposed um, uh, slopes. So that's why, where wall lizards uh, live. And uh, when you go more to the south uh, in, in Europe, you will, you will find rocky slopes. But here in the Netherlands, we don't really have rocky slopes. Uh, the slopes uh, in our country are, you know, more like um, uh, lime and sand um, uh, substrate. So um, I, I do believe they, they reached uh, Holland uh, through uh, the, um, the stream valleys of, uh, of one of the rivers. But they found uh, a good place to live only because humans uh, built city and created these city walls. So I suppose without these city walls uh, here at their northernmost range, they wouldn't be able to survive, I think. Yeah, well, um, I, I was telling uh, the, 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 the wall lizards live on, on these uh, city walls, but um, they also, from these um, uh, areas, they colonized other areas in the city of Maastricht. And one of these areas is a, uh, is a railroad, and, um, but there haven't been uh, uh, trains riding there since the 80s. So it got really, um, um, how do you call them, um, colonized by, uh, by, by vegetation, and it, got, uh, and, and it kind of grew into a forest or so. But you had these substrate of uh, railroad tracks is, of course, uh, rocky. So yeah. this, warms, uh, this warms up, and, and this is um, suitable for wall lizards as well. So the wall lizards started uh, colonizing this, uh, this railroad from the 80s, and they have been living there just fine uh, because there were no trains riding there. And then um, a couple of, few, couple of years back, in I think 2007, they had this plan to um, revitalize this, uh, this railroad again, so um, freight trains had to, had to ride there. 
And of course, um, the, the walrus, it's, uh, well, in our country, it's a protected species. So the, one, the, the company uh, who was interested in revitalizing this uh, railroad track you know, had to live up to the, uh, to the standards of the law and deal with this protected species. That's why where we came in as the, as the biologists, and we made a plan together how they could revitalize this uh, railroad uh, and at the same time keep safe this population of wallets living there. So what was the, uh, I'll call it the mitigation project or the, the temporary home. Talk about what you guys did to, to save the wall lizards while they were renovating or, or revitalizing the, the railroad. The, the, the revitalizing of the, um, uh, of the railroad uh, involved uh, um, renewing all the substrate uh, there. So really uh, they reset uh, the, uh, the, the habitat of, uh, of the lizard. But before uh, they did this, uh, we, um, uh, we cooperated with them and we built, we built walls for the, for the wall lizards, uh, basically. So just uh, a few meters uh, alongside the railroad track, just 10 or 15 meters or so, we created as much as uh, 25 walls with a total length of a, kil- a kilometer or so. And we uh, translocated the uh, wall lizards from their old habitat on the, uh, the old uh, railroad track to these new walls. And after that, uh, the company uh, was able to, um, you know, to, to, to dig away the, uh, the old substrate of the railroad track and renew it with new tracks and, and new railways. I know it can be hard getting animals to, to leave their old homes and, and sort of adapt to a new site. How, what were the results like? Yeah, well, after translocating, we got most of the population, uh, over 100 uh, adult wall lizards. And the time between uh, building their new walls and, and, and translocating them was, was too short. We knew this in, in advance, but there was no other way. So the walls were just there, just half a year or so. And it was, we knew uh, they were too fresh. Uh, there, wasn't any, uh, there wasn't much vegetation on, and um, there wasn't enough uh, food for them uh, to be found. So we monitored uh, the, um, the, the population and how it uh, evolved in the, in the years afterwards. And we saw there was um, uh, just about 20 or 30 adults uh, left uh, in, in the area, and the other ones uh, must have uh, fled. And we have been monitoring since, uh, so in total now uh, for eight years. And we see promising results only from year five on. So th- this is the, uh, just after five years, the wall is really accepted uh, their, uh, their new home and uh, started uh, reproducing uh, in, in sufficient numbers like we, uh, we were hoping. Okay. Um, I mean, do, also, another question about the wall lizards. I mean, in, I'm familiar with them in the United States where they're an exotic species, um, but they seem to, to spread out in residential areas. I mean, do they, in, I guess they've been there a long time, but in Maastricht, do you find them sort of dispersing and sort of setting up in smaller populations in, like, people's gardens and on the sides of their houses and that kind of thing? Well, no, not really. Okay. No, they, um, they have this large area uh, of, uh, you know, these ancient city walls. Yeah. There is a uh, large population, hundreds of uh, wallets living there, and they are wandering around, but they are not really colonizing um, surrounding gardens or so, not really. They okay. did colonize this, this railroad. And another funny thing is because you're mentioning uh, the, uh, uh, the wall is, it's, uh, is an exotic species in, uh, in, in the United States. 
but it's uh, exotic species in, in other parts of the Netherlands as well. And we see a really a large um, uh, amount of populations popping up all over the country in the last 15 years. So uh, we do have uh, 12 or so um, exotic populations at the moment. And we did a genetic analysis of these, um, of these populations. And most of them uh, are, uh, we can prove that they are from France or from Italy and from other parts of their, uh, um, of their range. So really, um, trade, um, trans transport free, uh, through trade or uh, deliberate uh, introduction um, uh, is really uh, going on at the moment uh, too. So they are um, uh, living in other parts and they are living there in, wall, uh, in, in gardens and, and so and in really um, uh, urban areas. That's interesting. And I wanted to wrap up with one extra thing. Um, you mentioned or you, you're, the paper was, was from, I think you're the, the organization involved, it's called, is it Ravon? Yeah, true. Ravon. Uh, Ravon. It's okay. um, uh, Reptile, Amphibian, Fish Conver Conservation, Netherlands, we're called. Uh, uh, Ravon is a uh, NGO. So uh, we are both a uh, professional organization. We uh, do um, uh, projects, and they're all aimed at um, studying and protecting our native uh, reptile, amphibian, and fish species. And... Um, an important part of our, um, an important tool for us is a large database we have. And uh, this is filled with uh, distribution data from all these uh, species from all over the country. And we collaborate with uh, many hundreds of um, volunteers. We have a whole network of volunteers throughout the country. And they report to us uh, sightings of, uh, of our species. They do also um, standardized monitoring for years on. So we really have a uh, good view on distribution and trends uh, of our species. Okay. This, this is an important part of our, uh, an important tool for us for conservation uh, of our species. Synanthropic organism. Did you have wall lizards where you grew up? Mm -hmm. There you go. All right. Mm -hmm. We have, so they're not native, they're native to, this group of lizards is native to Europe in North Africa, but they, uh, a lot of them have managed to colonize cities in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, a colony that used to exist near the Philadelphia Zoo hmm. in the middle part of the last century, middle part of the 1900s. And it uh, apparently just died out on its own. Um, but apparently was hmm. released from either some pets got loose or some animals being shipped to the zoo got loose. And so there was a wall lizard colony in West Philly, of all places, like a mile from where we're sitting right now. Um, and then more recently, a colony got established starting um, in Long Island near, um, mm. near New York City, has expanded into New York City, and then down into New Jersey. This is so cool, right? Yeah, and, and, yeah. and something similar happened in, in Cincinnati with actually a different closely related species of wall lizard where someone was on vacation in, I forget, it was Florence, somewhere in Italy, took some home, let them go in Cincinnati, <laughs> um, and <laughs> in like the fifties or sixties, and they're they're and they've spread since then. For for in the states, they're this they're thought of as this kind of uh, as this very innocuous exotic animal. Like they're they don't seem to harm any native species. They they like walls. They stick to walls, um, which doesn't imply much competition. They don't bite. They're not poisonous. So they're yeah. they're interesting. They're yeah. They're around. <laughs> yeah. And so, but then in Europe, where they're sort of, where they're part of the natural heritage, 
just what caught me about the paper that this is all ba- that this interview came from was was just this idea of preserving natural habitat. But then I said, wait a second, the natural habitat's a wall. <laughs> you know, it's a railroad embankment. Yeah, but that's that. You know, that's what I said before. That if you think of high rises as you know, the birds look at them as rock formations or mountains. Yeah. You know? um, I think that's how we should look at them. That's how we should start to design them. You know, so that they can have a a skin or a periphery that is that that can be full of nesting places and full of you know insect attracting places and green roofs and green facades and so forth. But the the awe aspect and the sense of wonder is so important, I think. I got asked to do this thing, and then it, it was just a, a tragedy of comedy of errors. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Tony, just to talk a little bit as our bird expert about what does a what does a swift look like? What does it do? A cigar with wings. <laughs> so they're somewhat closely related to hummingbirds. A lot of people think that they look they they function similarly to swallows. So a lot of people think they're yeah. related, but they're not. Yeah. They're, swallows are a true songbird, and mm-hmm. swifts are not. They're they're not close related at all, um, and they're even more aerial than the swallows. Mm-hmm. Some will never even touch the ground. This is something and, and, that like blew my mind when I learned yeah. it, and I had to yeah. stop. Yeah. Yeah, I cut it out one of the interviews, but I had to stop. Yeah. Uh, I think it was either, it might have been Mar, the Italian guy, Mauro Ferri, yeah, where yeah. he made some offhand comment about, oh, they never... Yeah, I know. I stopped, I stopped with that, too. I, uh... and I was like, wait a second. Did yeah. you just say they never yeah. touch the ground? And, and he's like, yeah. yeah, basically, except for when they're nesting. They're in the air all yeah. the time. Yeah, how's that yeah. even energetically possible, right? How can they yeah. do that? Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's like in, in a... And some will roost in like old trees or a chimney or a, you know, on a cave or something. But swallows will, you know, they'll just spend a significant part of the day just perched up. And you'll see them just sitting there on a, on a branch or on a yeah. wire or something. Yeah. But the swifts are always zipping around. I just hadn't realized, have you heard of this? That people would, I mean, I know that in, in Southern Europe, there's a lot of eating, um, I guess in France too, eating songbirds, mm-hmm. um, which always strikes yeah. us as kind of weird. But that they that there were people would purposely build structures to have swifts and other parts of Europe swallow. I'm sorry, um, sparrows and get the eggs. and starlings. No, to get the fledglings. Oh, um, kind of like people do yeah. dovecotes to get the squab from pigeons. Mm. And I saw that I saw on one of the YouTube's or whatever you sent me. I saw the design of the buildings. How they had these wooden doors and they could yeah yeah so like little holes you can come in the inside of the tower and access the nest I didn't like it (laughs) I saw in uh, Cambodia kids would just come up to the bus with like trays of barbecued or like roasted songbirds there you go Mm. I mean, um, what was it, Francois? Well, I was thinking that we could build those same kind of nesting sites in buildings and just not have that door. In there. <laughs> so, <laughs> I have What is it in, in, in France that's Ortolan is the bird? You know, Ortolan? It's I'm, like, I'm mostly vegetarian, so I really don't no, know. No, I'm totally vegetarian. But like, but Ortolan is a songbird, and supposedly you're supposed to eat it with a napkin over your head. Oh, dear. Um, the, the notion being that you don't want God to see that you're eating something so so cute and pretty. Oh, hmm. that's um, and Francois Mitterrand, who was the Prime Minister of yeah. France, who's dying of cancer or something, is his last meal he wanted to be Ortolan. 
Mm. Um, so it's and it's it's a huge conservation problem in Europe mm. now that, that especially in Cyprus and other places in southern Europe where it's like mm-hmm. stopover places for migrating songbirds. Yeah. People just like hoover them up, um, vacuum them up for really, the oh. trade. Uh, really want to see a photo of someone eating that was with alligator head. Oh lord. The uh, I'm going to include one other little thing that we didn't get a chance to listen to ahead of time, but mm-hmm. Nick Horn is studying um, marine uh, ecology in Aberdeen, Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had been following some of his tweets about, uh, he studies in particular dolphins in the Aberdeen Harbor. I thought that was interesting in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And then I asked him to like record a little bit and send it to us. And then he mentioned that the, the dolphins use, there's a sort of a seawall in the harbor that the dolphins will use to in their hunting or their, I don't know how we call hunting, I guess, with dolphins, like where they'll they'll push fish up against it. Uh-huh, yes. And then... Like it's a reef or something. Yeah, yeah. And Back so, them into a corner. And then eat them against that wall yeah. in the harbor. Yeah. Hi, I'm uh, Nicholas Horn, and I'm currently enrolled on a master's degree course at University of Aberdeen. I'm going to be undertaking a study of the bottlenose dolphins that are here, uh, seen in the harbor regularly, um, uh, using some photo identification techniques. The harbour here in Aberdeen is an extremely busy port. Um, it has ferries using several routes, but by far the biggest cause of boat traffic here is the massive oil industry in the North Sea, which gives Aberdeen the title the energy capital of Europe. Aberdeen Harbour is located at the mouth of the River Dee. This river has salmon runs throughout the year, and as these are the largest bottlenose dolphins in the world, big nutritious fish like salmon are extremely important to them. The unique thing with the dolphins in Aberdeen Harbour is that it looks like they're using the harbour itself to their advantage. Two harbour walls, large structures that are used to protect the harbour from rough seas, span the mouth of the river and the gap between the two acts as a sort of funnel for the salmon. The dolphins are seen to be using this situation by splitting into two groups, one spanning the gap between the walls to wait for the salmon and the others jumping, splashing and chasing to corral the salmon towards the others. Currently what we know about the but dolphins that hunt in the harbour are that they're from a population of the dolphins that travel along the east coast of Scotland. They're based north of Aberdeen in the Moray Firth. They regularly use Aberdeen Harbour as a hunting spot, and my research will be using fin identification to find out how many and which individuals are using the hunting grounds. Aberdeen Harbour has had a long history of boat traffic. With fishing being prevalent before the oil industry, the area has always been an extremely busy place for boating. There are, however, plans to expand the harbour and the effects of this expansion on the dolphins are unknown. The thing to remember with this population is that the hunting ground is not the only place they forage and it is created by the harbour itself, so the effects of the expansion could be very small on the overall population which spans such a large area. Locals in Aberdeen visit Torrey Battery, the best spot for sighting dolphins, quite regularly. Many people going out there with their cameras and getting some great photos. What surprises me upon arriving in Aberdeen is how little the rest of the city and the country know about these dolphins. Many people visit Florida and Mexico to see bottlenose dolphins when they can see them right here in the UK. The Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, or the RSPB, here in the UK have set up a dolphin watch scheme where volunteers go to Torrey Battery to talk about the dolphins with the locals and raise awareness for the conservation issues in the marine environment. Thanks to Helena for coming by and talking with us. Thank you. Again, I apologize for my rudeness and not being here from the start. He's a he's a dedicated public servant. 
<laughs> trying to channel the, the needs of the city into the, the response of the park system. It's true. It was good because a few of these people were talking about their parks and feeling neglected uh, in these small parks. And I just took notes and mm-hmm. I will I will schedule some public programs in their parks. So in the right parks, on. you know. Maybe some of these parks are places that could be biophily spots. I was just yeah. thinking, can I have a... List of these parks that we can put them on our map. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting. You know, one of the parks I'd never heard of, and it's I feel ashamed to say that, but, I mean, it's a six-acre park, right? Wow. McMichael Park in, in East Falls. Hmm. And, you know, it's just... That's, it's, a pretty, that's a pretty good chunk of land, six acres. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you get it. Like, it's, it's half a mile from a 1,900-acre park, yeah. so hence it gets overlooked. But, yeah. you know... Um, and it's probably no understory. It's just it, I looked, you know, when they're talking about, it, I brought it up on Google Earth, and and it's probably just one, one of these parks that, you know, there's no understory, just some shade trees, and who knows what you find there. But why not, you know, go there and, and see what's there? You know, it's funny if, if you know I'm a lifelong resident of the city, and you know I've always wanted to work for the park system, um, and you would think I would know pretty much every park in the city, but a six acre park in there's a lot of little parks. The fifth largest city in America <laughs> with a notoriously large park system can escape your attention. Yeah. You know? I, I learned, I mean, I, I don't have your kind of profession or, or background in this, but I still have found myself um, learning about new parks and being like, wait, where is that? And people, people always assume you, I mean, because it's, it's much more intimate for them. Um, like if I were talking about Malcolm X Park to somebody in, in East Falls, they would know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, someone talking about I don't know, is there Mount Vernon Park that's in um, Vernon Park? Fairmount, right? Nah, Vernon Square, something like that. Never mind, I'll cut that out. But yeah, so so it's easy to, it's a, it's a big city, it's easy to lose track of these things. Um, and um, anyhow, so let's, let's wrap up. Uh, thanks again for listening. Um, if you do want to get in touch with us, you can write us an email at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter at herbwildlifecast. Um, find us on Facebook. Uh, let us know what you think of the show and anything else you'd like us to add. Um, we're going to be posting a lot of fun stuff on social media about the Biophilic Cities Network, about Biophilly, um, about Swifts and about wall lizards and um, about uh, dolphins in Aberdeen Harbor, um, which you'll listen to in a minute um, after we're done with the, this part of the episode. Um, and with that, um, thanks a lot. And well, when will this come out? Will this come out right? I'm leaving this in a week. This will probably come out after. No, this will come out while you're in Australia. Yeah, so this will come out while I'm in Australia. So holler at me, um, tony.crosdale at gmail.com. C R O A S D L E at gmail. That's my personal email, giving it out. <laughs> uh, holler at me if you're in Australia and want to hang out, show me some cool wildlife. I'll be between Sydney and Cairns, but, you know, hey. Flights are fairly cheap in Australia. Maybe I'll go visit you in Perth. Who knows? I might get, <laughs> I might get crazy. <laughs>